Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences, reflections, and big ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard conferences and publications. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Columbia University. I'm your host, Big Ideas in Eating Disorders, and I am delighted to be joined today by Judy Banker. Judy is the founder. She founded the Center for Eating Disorders in Ann Arbor, Michigan in 1983 and continues to serve as executive director of the center. She is a former president of the Academy of Eating Disorders and a leader in the field who has really helped us think hard about how we provide treatments that work. Judy, thank you for joining us. Oh, hi, Kathy. I'm very excited to be on today and to talk with you about the big ideas that I've, I've got percolating. So let's get started at the beginning. When did you know that you were interested in mental health and how did that journey begin for you? It was it was a default because I was going to major in philosophy uh, in college. I minored in it um, and I decided, well, I'll major in psychology instead because you can't get a job outside of teaching in philosophy. So it didn't seem marketable. Um, and I had always been the kind of, I was always interested in psychology, just growing up, understanding people, understanding organizations even, and systems and that sort of thing. So psychology was sort of a natural proclivity for me. And um, so I ended up going to graduate school and um, got a master's in clinical psychology and was going to go on for a PhD, but had a boyfriend back in Ann Arbor that I wanted to get back to, as we, you know, as, as we humans do. And uh, so I moved from Pittsburgh. I went to Duquesne University for my graduate degree. And it was a great program. It was an existential phenomenology. So it blended my philosophy interests beautifully with psychology. And I, and I, we studied different philosophers and different kinds of psychi- psychiatrists with an existential bend, bent. And one that influenced me a lot was um, R.D. Lang, who uh-huh. was a radical Scottish psychiatrist at the time, who he, he posited that people developed mental illness um, in, in order to live in, on an, in an unlivable environment. Mm-hmm. And I just loved that. Mm-hmm. I loved it back then, and I didn't even know that much, but it just felt like it was so respectful. So you start out, actually, it's so interesting that you were able to find a clinical program in psychology that brought in a philosophical, foundationally had a philosophical bent to it. So you've been in the world of ideas um, from the beginning as you've approached this work. And then you wind up in Ann Arbor. Um, are you practicing? What are you? What do you do when you land in our Ann Arbor? <laughs> you get a job at a behavior modification weight loss clinic. <laughs> so did that feel like a big disconnect? <laughs> oh yes, it uh-huh. was. Yeah, it was a. <laughs> it, you know, it was a job. 
I was 21, you know, I could have been rocketed through school and I was 21 and needed a job and it was on campus and had this kind of character guy who was running this clinic on campus. And I thought, well, okay, take the job. I'll do that. That'll be something interesting to do. And, uh-huh. and so I was seeing clients then. I learned all behavior modification techniques. That was all the rage back in the mid seventies. That was the mm-hmm. answer to everything. And we'd have clients of all ages come in who wanted to lose weight. And we would have packets of handouts and charts and walk them through the different kinds of behavior modules. And I was warned by our, our director, don't let them drift into their feelings because Uh that is not relevant to behavior modification. We're working on behaviors only, which to me was just, okay, captain, but this made no sense whatsoever because they were, people wanted to talk about their feelings. Absolutely. So, you you recognize from the beginning this is a job it is there's there's good work in there but it is really deficient in terms of the whole picture of these individuals who are who are coming into your service and you know feelings matter so where do you go with that what do you do with that well the other thing that was happening at the time because it was on campus we would have clients i, I would have clients coming in we saw a lot of college students and <laughs> They would be talking about making themselves throw up. They would be talking about restricting. And this was sort of our field. I think it was de- developing in, in a nebulous yeah. sort of way around the country. Um, and I, you know, what do you do with behavior modification, weight loss modules when you have somebody going through that kind of thing? So my interest was peaked. I also had a family member growing up. Um, you know, a, a related person who suffered from anorexia nervosa mm-hmm. and, um, and somebody in high school that I knew who suffered from anorexia nervosa. Actually, I did. We didn't know what it was. Right. But we you knew friends. something was seriously awry. And so now you, you've got this personal experience. You know, there are people who can be really dysregulated in terms of their eating and weight and that it that their feelings matter in that story. You're seeing it with your patients in the weight loss program that's behaviorally focused. And you're right. You're describing a time that's really the beginning of the modern day history of eating disorders. It was. And so it, as it happened, the, the program that I worked for was bought out by a psychiatric clinic. Mm-hmm. And they wanted the behavior modification weight loss program to be part of one of their offerings. Mm-hmm. And so we were subsumed by a larger clinic. And that allowed me to, I began seeing clients who had other kinds of issues and had a supervisor who helped me, you know, helped train me and get me acclimated to working with feelings and mm-hmm. uh, underlining issues. And interestingly, I never did uh, stop using the behavior techniques. They've always been useful. Um, but this program then, opened up a larger population to me. Mm-hmm. Then, um, interestingly, they also participated at the time, which was something in the later 70s, the um, um, high protein liquid weight, liquid weight loss program that was the big rage back All then. the rage, right. Right. So then I, I left that program because it began to feel 
kind of like snake oil. I don't know. It was all getting too strange. So then I went to, I found a very conservative psychiatric clinic, moved over there and decided I, at the very opening meeting where they're introducing me, I said, I'm going to be specializing in eating disorder treatment. Uh huh. And just declared yourself. That's it. I'm doing it. I'm staking it. And they all looked at me with blank looks. One, one guy, <laughs> I remember so clearly going, where are you going to find all the people with eating disorders? Like, <laughs> what are you, what are you talking about? And I, I was just like, are you kidding me? They're out there. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people who are going through this. And I developed a program there. I, I created the Center for Eating Disorders as a nonprofit within that clinic. Uh-huh. And, and then left that clinic when managed care hit and took uh-huh. over psychiatric clinics. I couldn't bear it. Uh-huh. Bear those meetings. Um, so just left and started a private practice, took the center with me and we opened up a freestanding location in downtown Ann Arbor. And uh-huh. you know, we're, here we are still. Yeah. So you founded this center in Ann Arbor in 1983, right? So we're at 40 years, 40 year anniversary. Congratulations. So let's talk a bit about these 40 years. Um, during the time that you've been practicing, you you built several specific programs. One of them is BodyWise. Tell us about that. When the center opened and when I was first practicing with eating disorders, we always addressed compulsive eating. That's what we called it. Um, and uh, throughout that time, it wasn't ever a separate program or anything like that. But then we... Um, Amy Pershing is uh, was our clinical director. I took her. To, she joined the staff at CED. Uh, we've been working together maybe twenty five years, something like that. And Amy had a particular passion for working with people who binge, binged, um, and she has been a pioneer in the field of binge eating disorder. She's written a book about it. She's, you know, <laughs> she wrote a book. She's the next. Uh, but she, Amy, Amy has dedicated her career to that. And so in her, in the process of her work at the center, she developed a, a more of a specialized program for people coming in with binge eating disorder and calls mm-hmm. up body wise. Uh-huh. So it's a program within the center that Amy really spearheaded. Mm-hmm. And as a subset of that, she also spearheaded the hunger wise program, which mm-hmm. is a, community-based, skills-based, group, um, workbook-based um, program for people with subclinical issues around binge eating, maybe yo-yo dieting, people who have discontent around their weight and are looking for an alternative. Okay. So you've got body-wise, hunger-wise, and then the general range of, of services at the Center for Eating Disorders were are there particular schools of thought or particular methodologies around therapy that were part of this story from the beginning? Yes, for sure. Uh, from the beginning, our philosophy it was like it was like my way or the highway that if you didn't believe in a collaborative feminist empowerment based approach to working with people with eating disorders, you didn't belong at the center. That's mm-hmm. that is what we were. I saw and heard stories about people going to programs and being told your eating disorder 
affects your brain. You, you don't have any control over your life. We are in control mm -hmm. or people that were punished. If they didn't follow the program, if they didn't comply, they were kicked out. Mm -hmm. I, even at that time thought, are you kidding? We've got people who are being tortured by this cognitive circuit or brain circuit. You know, I, to me, it seems like it is, has to be a physical circuit in there because it's so similar person to person they're being tortured by this inner voice eating disorder voice that is um dominating them and we're telling them that they have to be compliant to you it didn't make any sense to me that we have to help them find their own voice help people be able to talk back to the eating disorder to separate to find out to be able to determine their authentic self and their their rational mind as, a, as something separate from the eating disorder. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in a battle with it, but just to be able to go, no, you exist outside. You've got to be able to talk to this thing. Mm -hmm. And at the time, you know, there was Susie Orbach had written Fat as a Feminist Issue. And it was, you know, we really thought we're looking at women. Mm -hmm. we're not, we didn't, I don't know, we didn't think about other populations that were affected. And so it was very much of a feminist in the beginning, grounded in feminist collaborative approach that you work to try to do, do symptom management, but you address the person inside and help them become an expert on their own life. Mm -hmm. Side by side, we're not on top of you or, you know, leading you by the nose. Mm -hmm. and so that, that has persisted to this mm -hmm. day. You've been at this practice for a long time. And over the four decades of running this center, I imagine that what you've done has evolved and, and the patients who have come, the individuals who have come to your center for care uh, have who they are has evolved in some ways. What have you seen in terms of who those individuals are and the diversity and complexity that has informed the evolution of your thinking? It used to be that, I thought I kind of knew who was going to be walking through the door, that there was going to be a kind of a sameness in terms of symptom structure with people um, and conversation and that type of thing. That was sort of back in the day. Now I don't know who the heck. If I have a new, a new, a new patient, I have no preconceptions anymore. Um, I've had a woman... Um, woman I still see who's in her 80s, who developed anorexia in her late 70s. And in an effort to um, not develop illnesses that had taken other family members, she was trying to be healthy. And then she would go to doctors and she would go up for her checkups and she was losing weight and they would congratulate her. And, and she, even at the time that I first saw her, her, her family they were concerned that she probably had early Alzheimer's because her cognitive functioning was so impaired. And this was a woman who was so frail. We had a physician on staff at the time, Suzanne Hash, and um, we were working with her and kind of terrified. This mm -hmm. woman was so frail. It didn't feel safe necessarily to refer her even to a hospital at that time. She had a close medical follow-up. 
And we worked with her on outpatient refeeding. The, the easy part about her was that she wanted to be healthy. She didn't really, she had her weight biases and things like that, but she really didn't, she didn't have the strong anorexia circuit that some people have. And you wouldn't have seen her. She wouldn't have walked through your door in 1983. Never. Right. Never, never would have seen her. Wouldn't have seen the, a 20, this 20 something guy I saw who um, had been to every specialist as a pre precursor. He, he turns out he had ARFID since he was about eight or nine and he's 20 in early twenties at this point. Um, but ARFID wasn't, that wasn't anything on anyone's radar. And so he had been his parents who were educated people. They just took him from specialist to specialist to specialist. He was having digestive issues and he was getting increasingly delayed gastric emptying. He, mm -hmm. But it wasn't, it wasn't associated with the low intake. Mm -hmm. And they read an article about ARFID after 12 years or 10, whatever, and brought him in to see me. And he was one of the easier cases for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to help him get back on with his life. And it makes me sick to this day to think of that. Mm -hmm. She struggled out there. Again, somebody you wouldn't have seen in the early 1980s, right? No, not at all. That's completely different. So you've got individuals who are older. You've got different syndromes of eating disturbances with people coming in with ARFID, for example, or that pattern of uh, eating disturbances. You've got young men coming in. It's a more diverse set of issues and a more diverse group of individuals. What does that mean for you in terms of clinical care today? Well, I have to say it's more stressful. It's mm -hmm. It is just much more difficult. I think because it's so unpredictable, there's not a sense of like, oh, you know, I've, I've got this, you know, who, who am I going to be seeing today? It's all going to be fine. Because the, that one, you have people coming in with very, really varied histories. It's not sort of you get the college student who's had it for two years mm -hmm. or three years. You've had people coming in who've been, have had an eating disorder for decades, mm -hmm. maybe different courses of treatment, things like that. And that wasn't the case back in the seventies. And even though maybe you, they, maybe they existed, but it wasn't commonplace that you would see that. The other thing that we're confronting, I think the, the levels of comorbidity are much more intense. The level of anxiety, we all talk about it. Social media has changed the lives of recent generations, just absolutely. We didn't have cell phones back in the seventies. It was just not anything you had to contend with. You didn't have to contend with Snapchat or Instagram or constant photographs of yourselves. I had a client come in the other day and talk about she's worried about her roommate who's just in her room all day long taking pictures of herself mm -hmm. to post on social media. And then she's mm -hmm. obsessed. You know, maybe it would have been expressed differently. I don't really know. But but this kind of thing of uh, the even the tactics of marketing and the, the, the health, diet, beauty, fitness, surgery industries the mm -hmm. market is so sophisticated and growing more sophisticated all the time. And the, the images on social media and the filters and the AI, we can't, I mean, even using research, research can't keep up. These issues that you describe 
create a really different set of demands. And in terms of your the the big idea that has evolved for you, that has crystallized for you as a result of this complexity, tell me what your thinking is. I think that we live in an environment now and increasing there's so many factors that are conspiring against our well-being. <laughs> there, are th- there are factors that can help promote well-being and protect us. But I feel like the environment itself, you know, I use the word iatrogenic, that it, there's a toxicity in our environment at this point that we have not been able to address. And in terms of working with people with eating disorders who have body, uh, body image distortion and, and self-loathing and self-criticism and all these factors that they're trying to work with, um, I don't, I think that we have to be looking at borrow from the substance abuse community and have more of a harm reduction approach to our work with eating disorders, more of a long-term look at people being able to move in and out of treatment, maybe have, you know, in my ideal world, there would be very easy access to kind of um, check-in centers. If you're feeling like you're kind of shaky um, where I don't, I no longer think in terms of total recovery or full recovery. I think about recovery as an ongoing process that that we can't predict what's around the bend that could challenge you, that could make access to food more difficult, or the air is toxic so we can't go out and get gro- groceries, or you know that the economy is shifting. You don't have you don't have the money to be able to. That that's a very real thing. A, 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 a young man I work with right now with ARFID was, was having financial challenges and simply couldn't get food and mm-hmm. couldn't afford it. Um, I think that the challenges are so multitudinous and multi-layered that we have to help, I think for us as clinicians and, to, and people that we work with, that we have to have a healthy respect for what, we're, what we re- are talking about when we talk about recovery. Mm-hmm. That it, it is, I do think it is a lifelong process now. Mm-hmm. So as you s- describe that, that's a that's a pretty powerful statement that recovery is not an end state, but actually recovery is about being in it for the long haul because we're up against environmental factors that we know about and some that are yet to reveal themselves or that might evolve. And so as I hear you talking, what I hear, Judy, is that you're saying recovery is recovery is a is a verb. Recovery is a process. It's a lifestyle. It's yes. a lifestyle. Yes, okay. exactly. That there is a sense of that 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 you have to be prepared for challenges, um, surprise challenges, things that we haven't even thought of, or challenges even within your. You know, before the challenges were, what if you got a divorce or what if someone died or we, sort of natural things that you could anticipate in life that would would evoke a life change or a change in your appetite or whatever. But now there are things that are coming at us in terms of, you know, we talk about, you know, climate, economy, politics, social media, advertising, that you have to be... Um, you have to be looking at that you're, you're going to be having to deal with this for the rest of your life in terms of trying to protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, toxic elements in the culture. 
one of the things that a lot of people talk about is the um, need to develop ourselves and our interests and build space in our lives and in our communities that where we feel we're expressing ourselves, where we're finding outlets for who we are and what we love. And, and that's hard in a world of the technologies we have today that are 24 seven and feeling bombarded. So I'm wondering, I know that you are a musician in addition to being a therapist. Can you tell me about how does that fit in your life? And how does that fit in this story of creating environments, creating spaces intentionally when the default might not, you know, it might not be automatically served up to you, but how do you what, how does that serve you as a as a therapist? And what are your thoughts about that and how it fits with your overall philosophy of helping our patients create space that's healthy? What I found, and it was, it was um, I think music always has been a part of my life in, in little ways, but it has more recently, and um, I'd say over the past 10 years. And it was out of a, a need for... It was very much a need for self-expression. I needed, I needed to, I had a lot to say. <laughs> and always it's very much about human emotion. My, my, my songs are not, I don't know, it's not about politics, it's about anything. It's just very much complex emotion and trying to put that into a song that other mm -hmm. people can relate to. This is my challenge. And my hope is even that it'll help change people a little bit. Mm -hmm. They listen to these songs. But the other part that I like is I like I, I, the band, I, the band I work with, the, the person I record with, they're people, I, I really love these people. You know, it was a very conscious decision to create a world of that I liked, you know, that it was a world that I felt like I, I could sing in front of them, I could, here's a song I wrote, what I'll talk about vulnerable hey you guys here's a song what do you think let's try to play it and you know i i, I always even though they're the nicest guys in the whole world and really talented musicians I feel so vulnerable but mm -hmm. it's i know that that's important for me it's mm -hmm. important for my growth it's this is it was happening organically but i also know at the same time observing it going this is, do this girl like this is this is good for you to get out there and do this. And, and it's been great for me. And my music has continued to grow and evolve and all that kind of stuff. And performing is just a blast. It, it's blessed because and you think the New York Times, the New York Times used the word collective effervescence, which is the experience that a group feels when there's music, when people are listening to music together and people are playing music that we missed that during the pandemic, the collective effervescence of live music. Mm -hmm. It's a thing. It's a right. thing. So in, in clinically, what I know is important for health and growth and strength and protective against our toxic environment is developing inner strength and a sense of authenticity. But who am I? How do I know when I'm in a situation that supports who I am? You know, we're, we are who we are. We don't really have, that's, we couldn't, we're kind of, we, we're given this character and this body and all that. We are who we are and um, that we can keep working on trying to change who we are, or we can just lean into it. 
And mm-hmm. I think that we, we get health and strength and protection against the toxicities out there by becoming more and more and more who we truly are mm-hmm. as people. That sounds kind of, you know, woo-woo, but I don't think it is really. You know, we we know when something fits for us and it doesn't fit for us. And, and that's a big part of the therapy that I do with people is help them create a life that supports their own growth and who they are. You started out in the study of philosophy. You brought these big existential questions to your work in eating disorders, and you describe early on, in fact, the world of eating disorders and the thinking in the beginning around eating disorders was very much situated in the tensions of our time the feminist issues, the issues around equality, the issues around voice and representation. And so in some ways, what I'm hearing is that you you see, what I hear is sort of a spiral staircase. The mm-hmm. same issue, the issue of voice, of situating ourselves in our time is still absolutely true. That's a true principle, but we've climbed the staircase in a way that there are a new set of issues that are maybe even more layered and more complex. And let's both go back and go forward, right? Go back to this idea of how do we center the really profound existential questions? And how do we recognize that we've climbed this spiral staircase and have many more layers now that are part of the story that make this really complicated work? Exactly. Exactly. That it's not, it isn't sort of, we can get people that manage the symptoms and send them on their way. Everything will be fine. That isn't, I don't think that that should be our work. Mm -hmm. I think that we we need to address this complicated layer of the spiral staircase that we're in. And people want to keep climbing, right? And that's what life is about. And so you're saying, let's Let's really intentionally think about what does it mean if we shift to this idea that recovery is a verb, right? That recovery is an ongoing process. So as you imagine future generations of clinicians and researchers, some words of advice or some wishes that you hold for them? My words of advice are, we have to keep working on our professional relationships. We have to work on being on the same side and even being on the same side of people who are really angry about what they're experiencing in the world and larger bodies or, you know, and, uh, you know, gender issues and things like that, that it is complicated out there. Um, and that if we work on our, I've always thought this, that that we really need to work on the health of our institutions, our, our associations, our, our, our um, professional groups and peer organizations and things like that, and be able to manage complex conversations with people that we aren't that familiar with or with points of view that we're not that familiar with, that we're a little uneasy with. And um, I think we have we have to do that more and more that there's probably a natural inclination to try to to simplify and back off from these hard conversations we, we have to grow we have to keep growing ourselves psychologically and in a, ma- a mature kind of way to be able to grapple with the complexity that is out there now and um i hope that we do that 
So you're inviting people into space that is this this space that where we stretch, right? That is uh, not familiar and where we can see one shore that we know, maybe we have to let go some of that. Maybe we keep our, keep a, a foot on that. I mean, there's a lot that we know, a lot that we've learned, a lot that's a lot of ways that we've advanced the field, but how do we not stay on the shore when there's a lot more to learn uh, out there? Exactly. Exactly. Reflecting back on what you said earlier, Judy, about finding your full, your voice and creating space and environments where you felt a high level of trust and where you could be vulnerable because you would be respected and supported. As you think about the the work going forward for clinicians and for individuals that we treat, are there specific things that you keep in mind that you set as a priority that align with that idea? I don't know what I don't know what my staff would say, but I I, I believe very strongly that our organization I've always thought this that to aspire for a healthy organization, that our organization has to be healthy. Um, otherwise we can't help clients get healthy. If they mm-hmm. walk in the door and there's a weird vibe or people are dieting or we're doing, we're, if we're not walking the walk and talking the talk, and if we aren't open with each other, if we aren't as authentic as, you know, we don't have to hang out together, but it's sort of like, I very much believe that each therapist has their own style. Um, you know, I, I in, in training and supervision, I, my goal is obviously to teach techniques and interventions and schools of thought, but to help each of the therapists trust themselves because we're going into battle in a sense with this work. Mm-hmm. And so I think like self-trust, authenticity, having a strong base within yourself, it transcends into all areas of life, including our professional work and our research too. Mm-hmm. As I reflect on our conversation today, what I'm hearing is the world has gotten much more complicated in in certain ways. And our specific field of eating disorders has gotten much more complicated and layered, both in terms of who we're seeing, the diversity of issues that they're bringing, the related concerns that they have, and that we have a, it's a moment in time where as a field, we really need to reflect on what we know what we don't know and lean into that. You bring forward this idea of recovery as a lifestyle, recovery as a verb, and that to the extent that we can help are the individuals who present for treatment lean into what recovery means for them over the course of their lifetime, right? It's not Yes. It's not a measure just of the symptom remission, but also the longer term picture is recovery over a lifetime, that they will be healthier. And what I hear and hope is that they also then will be empowered to help maybe push back on some of these, these environmental factors and create some different sets of defaults going forward for the next generation. Exactly. 
I think that's right. I think that's right. We don't, unless, unless we know our own minds and can express our own minds and we're doing living lives that we feel are, I think everybody wins if we live a life that protects us against that toxicity. Thank you so much for the work that you have done, Judy, for your thought leadership about what this work is and how it's evolved and for your continuing to look forward with the very real acknowledgement of how complicated this work is, but not letting go of the hope that actually recovery can be a lifestyle and we can push back on this toxic environment that we know today to create a better place for our patients and larger communities as a whole. Thank you. Thanks for this conversation. 